And welcome, Disability Law Show. You want to uh, reach out anytime, you can do so. Phone number, simple, one 821 5900 to get a hold of James or Savannah or a member of the team. Email, which we will be referring to all show, is help at disabilityrights.ca or simply shorten it to disabilityrights.ca, the website. And a chance there to find uh, past shows you can listen to and our TV show as well. So have a look at that. And we will get to the pocket employment lawyer. I know it says employment in it, but there is a disability section uh, within it so we'll get to that pretty robust website as we uh, we move on here um got a bunch of emails uh, to go james uh, what's going on with you pal not too much busy as always but uh, yeah. this time of year i've managed to finish most of the mediations i had on my schedule and so now i'm meeting with clients who have questions or concerns starting new files that sort of thing mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 not so much an email off the top, but it's a question that we always hear, whether it's uh, you know phone calls at the office or otherwise. And that is the you know, long-term disability policies often say that a person can get disability benefits so long as they are quote air quotes here totally disabled. But we know that this term is really misleading. Explain what people should know about that term and why it's not what it sounds like. It's a brilliant term laid out by the insurance company for sure, but what does it really mean? Well, what you need to understand is that most terms that we're dealing with when it comes to long-term disability are actually defined. They have a very specific definition, and you can find that definition in your LTD policy. So if you were given a benefits booklet by your employer when you were put on group benefits, for example, that will have in there towards the back usually or sometimes at the front a list of various different terms within the policy. And one of those terms will be total disability. And all that it means is whatever it says next to it, which is in almost all cases, it means that you have a disability or an inability to work at your own occupation because of an illness um, and that's during the first two years. After the first two years it's whether or not you have a disability that prevents you from working in any occupation that you're qualified for by training, education, or experience. And so all it really refers to is your ability to work. Yes, after the first two years it's work in any job as opposed to the job that you had, Mm -hmm. but it is always focused on whether or not your disability prevents you from working and that's it. It doesn't look at whether or not your disability prevents you from getting out of bed in the morning or from taking care of your self-care tasks or driving, you know, here or there or even, you know, doing, you know, chores around the house or going grocery shopping. None of those things define what total disability means. And so you can be somewhat functional and still qualify as totally disabled under the policy. So why do they use this term? Right. Well, they use the term because when people hear totally disabled it conjures up a very particular image in people's minds people hear totally total disability or totally disabled and the image that comes to mind is someone who really can't do anything or almost nothing they're essentially reliant on other people for every aspect of their life they you know need someone to help them get dressed and to cut their food for them and you know to drive them you know to appointments that's what people generally think total disability means but it does not mean that when you are talking about a long-term disability policy all it means is precisely what is written in the definition in the policy and it only refers to your ability to work whether it's your own job in the first two years or any occupation thereafter it's only referring to your ability to work 
They put it in there because when they are making the decision on whether or not to cut you off, they want you to feel like that they're justified. They say to you, well, based on the medical evidence, you are not totally disabled. And if you don't understand what that term means, you hear that and you think, well, okay, I guess that's true. I'm not totally disabled. I can get up in the morning. I can, you know, make my breakfast and get myself dressed and drive myself to my doctor's appointment. So I don't know. I guess they're right. I guess there's no point in fighting it. That's what they want. They want you to think that. Forget about what you generally think totally disabled means in a day-to-day context. The only thing that matters is whether or not it's preventing you from doing your job. And if you are not able to go to work and your doctors are supporting that, then you should be totally disabled under the policy. And that's really the extent of the analysis there. If you have a disability and your doctors are saying that disability is preventing you from working, then you are totally disabled under the policy. And that's it. It must be so effective for insurance companies with that that, that verbiage to shake people off claim and I'll forget it. I'm not dumb, you know, I'm not wheelchair bound. I'm not a quadriplegic. I guess I don't qualify, and they walk away, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, whoever thought of that term is a genius. Yeah. I, you know, they deserve a lot of credit. I mean, they're an evil genius, but a genius <laughs> nonetheless. Whoever thought of that has made literally billions of dollars for the insurance industry by convincing people that they were not entitled to benefits that, in fact, they probably were. It's funny, you know, you kind of put it into perspective, and I know the uh, the example we, we often use it before we, we take our first break here is, you know, if you have someone who's a, a surgeon and they've, you know, had a car crash and they've broken a couple fingers on each hand, I mean, they can still function, they can probably do most things with the other ones, but they would qualify as totally disabled because there's no way they're getting in there and doing surgery, right? Yep, that's absolutely true. Yeah, pretty yeah. freaky. Well, uh, we'll take a, a short break here. You want to uh, get a hold of James anytime, by the way, or Savan for that matter. It's one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred to discuss your matter, or an email is help at disabilityrights.ca. That is where we're going to go right after a short break. Dive into the emails and get to uh, to so much more here. The Disability Law Show on Global News Radio. Disability Law Show. Welcome back to it. You want to reach out? It is a one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Website is disabilityrights.ca. You can listen to past shows there and find the TV show as well. We uh, challenge you to uh, listen and watch as much as you can and get as much knowledge in your head as uh, we go forward here. Email, by the way, is help at disabilityrights.ca. Greg, as promised, first one up here. Greg, uh, his email says, James, my employer fired me after I applied for LTD. Applied. Now my insurance company denied my claim because they say that I no longer work because I was fired. I'm not sure what to do. Well, we sue your insurance company. It's what we do. Um, <laughs> yeah. it, it, it isn't a difficult decision to make. If an insurance company is telling you that even though you applied before you were terminated from your employment, that because you were terminated after, you no longer have coverage, they're just simply wrong. And what's more, they know it. Um, they know that that is not a valid basis to deny someone's claim. If you bring a claim for benefits, if you are disabled, you bring a claim and you're subsequently terminated, whether your insurance company has made their decision or not, you are still covered under that policy. And your insurance company absolutely knows that for a fact. And so if they're cutting you off in those circumstances, they're really doing something that they very well know that they're not entitled to do. And that means that they likely have exposure not just to have to pay the benefits that are owed under the policy, but because they're doing something that they know they can't do, they're likely going to have to pay punitive damages. In other words, the court is going to make them pay more than what is owed under the policy as a punishment for acting in a way that violates their duty of good faith to each and every one of their insurance. 
Vlad is up next. Again, it is help at disabilityrights.ca. Vlad uh, is using your favorite six-letter word here. He says, I was denied long-term disability, and I want to appeal. Do I need a lawyer for that? All right. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let, let's talk for a moment about the appeal process. So, yep. you know, I, I have to say right off the top, just don't appeal. Don't do it. It's a waste of your time. You have to keep in mind that an insurance company has one motivation in everything that it does, and that is to make profits for its shareholders. Fine. I don't begrudge them that. That's what they're in business to do. But when you think about it in those terms, you have to understand that their motivation at every stage is to turn a profit. And the only way that they do that is by taking in more premiums and paying out less in benefits. And so when you're looking at adjusters and how they are viewed by their employers, how they are judged, it is simply on their ability to get more people off of benefits as quick as Mm -hmm. they can. That is what their motivation is. And so that's what they're trying to do when they deny or cut off your claim. And when you appeal, it's typically going to the same person or perhaps their direct supervisor, and they have the exact same motivation that they did before. If they have already found a justification to terminate your benefits, unless you show them something that completely changes the picture, they're not going to approve your appeal. They're just not going to do it. And even if you do show them something that completely changes everything, it's still a crapshoot whether or not they're actually going to listen. So if you appeal, essentially all you're doing is you're delaying how long it's going to take to get a resolution. Because if you're appealing, it means that you haven't started a legal claim. And once you start the legal claim, that's when it really starts to turn. That's when everything starts to change. So you know, getting back to Vlad's question, you know, oh. do I need a lawyer for your appeal? Well, it, you know, to me, it's sort of like asking, well, you know, I have this winning lottery ticket. Do I need to have a firefighter on hand if I'm going to burn it? Well, I mean, yeah, I guess it's probably advisable, but you shouldn't do it in the first place. All right. Don't bother appealing. It's a waste of your time. Talk to us. We'll start a legal claim, assuming your doctors are supporting your your entitlement to disability benefits, that you're not able to return to work. And that's what you mm-hmm. do. Okay. Again, another uh, brilliant uh, mechanism of the insurance industry, much like the uh, you know totally disabled term, but an appeal, as you say, an internal process. And it's funny, between that and employment law, there's always this two-year boundary with those two. And the appeal process, if put forth, and a person does it, gets denied, does it, gets denied again. They keep going down this road. Are the insurance companies not happy to oblige because that guy's, whoever it is, guy or girl, is burning that two-year window and then they're at, they're at the point of no return at that yeah, point, it, right? So the law in this is actually a little bit unclear and there are some cases that suggest that depending on what the insurer says when uh, when you do the appeal that it might reset the clock. So mm-hmm. you know, even if you've gone beyond the two-year date from the first notice, I would still consider whether or not it's a situation where we could bring a legal claim after the two years. But having said that, you don't want to mess around with that. You don't want to take a chance that you have, in fact, burned that two-year window and that you can't bring a legal claim. And even if you have it, even if you're still entitled to bring the legal claim down the road, so what? You're just wasting your time. There's no benefit to doing it. There's no advantage to you know, running out the clock. All you're doing is allowing the insurance company to maintain complete control over the process. The appeal process is internal. They control every aspect of it. There's nothing in the policy that defines how this appeal is supposed to be conducted. There is no independent body that it gets sent to. It is simply being sent back to the insurance company for them to take another look at it. It's basically like saying... 
pretty please, please, pretty please, with a with a cherry on top, will you reconsider whether or not you'll pay me benefits? And you know what the answer is going to be. You know, it's kind of scary too because you know we've we've both seen we you know not no names mentioned, but we've both seen and heard ads about um, law firms, disability law firms, do the same stuff as you guys do, but they actually advertise saying come in and we'll help you with your appeal, which is kind of scary based on what you just said. That's kind of a red flag to me. That is a huge red. It's not kind of a red flag. That's a huge red flag. Yeah. If a lawyer is you know suggesting that you should be doing an appeal on an LTD case, question whether or not they know what they're talking about. Yeah. We're going to take a, a short game, uh, break, get back in your emails and questions. You want to send one along? We'd love to uh, love to get it on the air. Help at disabilityrights.ca. Another place for you to ask questions and uh, get them answered is mydisabilityquestions.com. You go there, there's a, uh, a chance for you to plug the question in, and you can search that question as well. It may have already been asked over the last several years and answered in depth, too. Do that first. If not, leave it there, J- uh, James or Savan or a member of the uh, the firm will get to it. Again, mydisabilityquestions.com. And always the phone number, one 821 5900 to reach out anytime as well. Right back. Lots more Disability Law Show is on the way. Global News Radio. And back to the Disability Law Show. James Fireman is answering your questions. You know how to ask them. Help at disabilityrights.ca, the email address. And uh, just shorten that, if you would, to disabilityrights.ca. That is the website. You can listen to past shows and the TV show. Have a viewing of that as well anytime it's uh, it's convenient for you. Phone number, toll free, always one 821 5900 so uh, we often talk about uh, not only your, your your disability policy with your insurance company, be it private or through the company, but an insurance company will ask you to apply for CPP disability as well, uh, Canada Pension Plan. Can you refuse, number one? And if you refuse, what will happen to you? All right. Well, let's talk about CPP disability for yeah. a second. So CPP is you know what you're paying into, and it's your pension plan through the federal government on yep. retirement at 65. CPP disability, if you've been paying into the CPP plan and you become disabled, then you can apply for disability benefits through CPP, CPP disability. The test is similar but more difficult than the standard long-term disability test. So in long-term disability cases, as we've already been discussing, the test is whether or not you have a disability that prevents you from doing your own occupation or after two years, any occupation. That's a standard LTD policy and what the test is gonna be. For CPP disability, the test is whether or not you have a severe and prolonged disability, which just by its language is a more difficult test to pass. But if you pass it, then you're entitled to benefits. And right now, the maximum is, I believe, about 1300 and change. It goes up a little bit each year. But if you approve for that, in most cases, it's actually not going to add to the total amount that you're getting, assuming that you are also getting long-term disability benefits. So let's say you have a long-term disability uh, plan and you're approved for benefits, and they're paying you $3,000 a month, and then you apply for CPP disability, and you're approved for that as well, and they're paying you the maximum, this $1,300. Well, you're not then getting $4,300 or uh, whatever that would be, you're actually still getting the same amount that you were getting before. If you were getting 3,000 through LTD, that's the same amount you're getting. All that's happening is your LTD insurer now has to pay you 1300 less than they did before. 
they get a credit for the amount that you're receiving from CPP disability. So now you're getting 1300 from CPP and 1700 from your insurer. Right. And so you may be wondering, well, okay, if I'm not getting an extra dollar in my pocket, why on earth would I bother right. going through the process of applying for CPP exactly. disability? Well, there's a lot of reasons why it actually makes a lot of sense to do it. So first of all, your LTD insurer can and eventually will cut you off. That is just going to happen. That's the way it happens for virtually anybody who doesn't have what is an obviously permanent disability. They are at some point going to find a reason or justification to try and get you off of the benefits. And if they do that, then you're out that money that they're paying you. But if you're also getting CPP disability, then that money is protected at least until the government agrees with them. So that's number one. Number two, virtually all long-term disability plans now have language that requires you to apply for CPP disability if you're entitled to, to receive that benefit. And if you don't make the application, if you say, well, I'm not going to bother because I'm not going to get any extra money out of it, yeah. then your insurer is entitled to assume that you would have been, it would, it would have been approved for CPP disability and take the credit anyway. So if you're, enti if you're entitled to apply and don't, and you would have gotten that 1300 well, now your insurer is only going to pay you the 1700 but you're not getting the 1300 from the government. So you might as well apply. If you apply and you're not approved, well, then your insurance company can't make that argument. Then they can't say we're taking off the 1300 anymore because you've applied and the government has said no, so there's no basis for them to say that they get a credit for that. But if you are approved, yes, you're not getting any more money in your pocket. But because the test for CPP disability is more difficult, right. it makes it very difficult for the LTD insurer to take the position that you don't qualify under their plan, which is a less difficult test to pass. If you're getting CPP disability, you ought to be, logically, you ought to be also entitled to get LTD. It doesn't mean you always will, but it puts them in a very tenuous position to argue that you're not entitled when the government says that you are. You said the uh, the max for CPP, give or take, is $1,300. So if you say, ah, you know what, I'm not going to bother insurance company, I'm not doing it, and they take a credit anyway, will they, will they automatically assume the max? Uh, no, they will make estimates based uh, on how much you've paid in. It's a reasonably complicated formula I that I always have to go back and try and figure out every time it comes up if it, you know someone hasn't actually applied. Um, and so you can run it through. It really depends on how many of the previous six years you've made contributions and what level of contributions you've made to CPP. And so based on that, you can max out at 1300 a year. But if you haven't been working you know, for most of the last six years, you're not going to be entitled to the full 1300 anyway. It doesn't seem, from what you said there, that there's really any disadvantage to doing it. It's all advantage because, you know, being the tougher test and the fact they're going to credit it anyway, there's there's no reason why you should not do that, right? Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. I mean, the only downside to it is that there's legwork involved and it's a bit of a pain right. in the butt. But so what? It's worthwhile in the end and everything, you know, it, it, the worst case scenario is you're in the same position you were before, but you're more protected. And the best case scenario is that, you know, you have a much stronger argument against the insurer and when they, if and when they cut you off, you still have some money coming in.
want to mention this before we uh, take a quick break here in about a minute, and I mentioned it off the top, and I know you guys have probably used it before, pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. Now you're thinking, okay, Employment Law Show, that's 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 Lior's bailiwick. That's a different show. Yes, it is, but uh, in, in, included in the Pocket Employment Lawyer, along with Severance Pay Calculator, and whether you're terminated for cause or you're an independent contractor, if you scroll down a bit, there is a section on long-term disability says, are you unable to work or have difficulty working due to illness or injury? You can use that tool there, get an answer, and then follow up with James or Savan. So uh, that's why I mentioned it. Again, one 821 5900 is the number. Pocketemploymentlawyer.ca is that website. Completely free. It's anonymous, and there is a contact button at the top right if you so choose to use it. Right back in your emails as we continue here. That is help at disabilityrights.ca. Lots more. Dennis, we'll get to you next on the disability. Disability Law Show on Global News Radio. Uh, Disability Law Show. Hello. Welcome back to it. John Scholes, uh, James Fireman, answering your questions to reach out 1 855 821 5900. Website is disabilityrights.ca. There, catch uh, and listen to past shows and the TV show as well. Email that we use for the purpose of the show or anytime for you, I guess, is help at disabilityrights.ca. And uh, we'll get to Dennis. Dennis, you're up. His email, been waiting, says, uh, James, my very good friend was in a uh, very bad car accident three years ago. He hired a lawyer who promised him the moon because my friend suffered a traumatic brain injury and has uh, difficulty walking after the accident. Nothing seems to be happening with that case, and that's concerning to me and his family, but I also have a question about his long-term disability. His payments were stopped last year, and his lawyer said that he would take care of that too, and again, nothing's happening. My friend's family called this lawyer several times, and he almost never returns calls. We're not sure uh, what is happening with either case. What do you suggest that we do? Well, I mean, it's nothing for you to do, obviously, other than support your friend. But for for your friend, in your friend's case, um, you know, you really have to think about what's going to be best for him in the end. And so the question is really about whether or not there is a need to look at changing lawyers or not. And typically speaking, especially for somebody who is reasonably far along into the process, I'm very hesitant to ever recommend that they change lawyers. Even, you know, it's not that I lack confidence in my ability to do better than another lawyer for any particular individual. I I generally think that I'm going to be on the very high end of whatever you're able to achieve from, from your legal counsel. But that may still not be enough to justify changing from one lawyer to another. Mm -hmm. And the reason is very simple. If you hire one lawyer and then you go hire another one down the road, that first lawyer has done work on the file and has to be paid for it. And if they've been working on the file for two, three, four years now, they have to be paid for whatever they've done, and that can be a very significant bill. And so even if I'm able to do better for your friend... That doesn't mean that in the end he's going to get more money in his pocket if he also has to pay that other lawyer out of his own end of the settlement. If I don't feel like I'm able to get enough more out of the defendants to justify the costs of switching lawyers, then it doesn't make sense. And so you really have to look at it. But when you're talking about a lawyer that's been on there for several years, it's going to be a significant bill if you change lawyers. And so the only way that that's justified is if there's really no other choice. And I get from what you're saying, Dennis, that he's really you know fed up with the lack of communication and how long it's taking. That's understandable, but that doesn't mean that he should just give up on his lawyer. What I would do in that situation is I would always advise that you go back to the lawyer that you have 
and you have a very frank conversation. So you call and you demand to have an in-person meeting. And you say, listen, I'm not pleased with how this has gone. One, I want information. I want to know exactly where things are at. Two, I want a timeline for how things are going to get resolved. Mm. And three, here are my expectations about communication. I expect that when I call or email, you're going to return it in a reasonable amount of time, which to me means whatever it means to you. And it shouldn't be more than a day or two at most. It really shouldn't take that long to get back to your clients. And frankly, we endeavor to return our clients' calls and emails in less than 24 hours, often much, much sooner. And so, you know, you lay out those expectations very clearly. If your lawyer says, well, I'm sorry, I'm just not going to be able to do that, well, then it's time to find another lawyer. But if they hear you and they say, okay, I understand what you're saying, we're going to try and do better, then it's worthwhile giving it another shot because it's going to be very, very expensive to try and change. And so you want to make sure that you've exhausted every possibility to ensure that you, you're the lawyer that you have is able to get your case settled. Um, you know, having said that, there are other issues in you know Dennis's email that I think are worth talking about. So it's important to understand that there is a significant interaction between a personal injury case and a long-term disability case. Okay. What you get in one affects another, and the timing of when you settle one versus the other can be really, really important. And so if your lawyer doesn't really understand both aspects of your potential claims really, really well, then what might wind up happening is you're going to get a good result in one, but you're not going to get the best result overall from two. And that's really what you should be looking at is what is the best overall result for the client, not how to maximize one part of it or the other. Because obviously at the end of the day, your client is most concerned with how much money they're going to get in their pocket when everything is finished, not one part or the other. You know, you, you did mention at the beginning there that there would be, if he, if he bounced lawyers, some costs involved with the years put in or months put in by that first lawyer who's uh, who's dropping the ball big time. So let's talk about that because people are going to say, okay, well, wait a minute. i got to pay for that lawyer. How does it work if I switch over to you? How does that lawyer get paid? Because you often get that question, right? Yeah, so typically it's not very difficult, at least initially, because uh-huh. what will happen is – so let's say there's a situation where someone has just decided they – just cannot stay with their lawyer anymore. They need to hire someone else. They come to me. They like what I have to say. They retain my firm. So in that situation, what happens is I would write to the other lawyer immediately with an authorization from the client, letting them know that I've been retained and they're to stop all work immediately. And we would like their account. So then the lawyer is going to prepare an account and typically they'll ask for however much the retainer entitles Mm -hmm. them to ask for for fees and they'll send a separate account for what are called disbursements. And disbursements is money that the lawyer has spent out of pocket in order to gather evidence for the claim. So I need whatever whatever information that lawyer has gotten from other sources, whether they're doctors, clinical notes and records, or whatever, you know, employment files, I'm going to need that too. And so if that first lawyer sends me the list of disbursements, I'm always going to agree to pay to reimburse them for that right away. The client doesn't have to do that. Gotcha. My firm will do that. We will pay for those disbursements to the other lawyer right away in exchange for the other lawyer releasing their file. And the way that we do it is we're, we're going to say we're not going to promise that we're going to pay the full account because the lawyer can just render an account and say, okay, you owe me $10 million based on right. nothing. Right. Yeah. So I, we're never going to say, okay, we're going to promise to pay the account. What we do is we say we're going to promise to protect your account. And so all that means is whatever whatever the lawyer's account is, we're going to, at the end of the case, we're going to hold on to that amount of money until mm-hmm. we can resolve it reasonably cool. with the other lawyer. 
Awesome. We'll uh, take a short break. With that, uh, that knowledge, you want to call through and get a hold of James when we're not on the air. Toll free one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Website is disabilityrights.ca. Put a help at at the front of that. Help at disabilityrights.ca, and you can send along an email as well. We'll get to uh, Janice after a short break on the Disability Law Show. This is Global News Radio. And welcome back, Disability Law Show. To reach out, one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Help at disabilityrights.ca. Another place for you to ask any questions is mydisabilityquestions.com. Uh, James answering your questions today, and uh, Savannah's off, and uh, probably next week as well. So James is doing all the heavy lifting. Janice, your email is uh, is up, and appreciate you sending that along. Says uh, James, my husband was injured uh, during a hockey game, and had to have surgery to his back. He's been off work for over six months, and initially he received EI sick benefits, but then when he applied for LTD, his claim was rejected because of, quote-unquote, insufficient medical documents. I don't understand that. His doctors have said that he will need to be off work for quite a long time to recover. His injuries are very serious, and he has a pretty demanding work schedule as a truck driver, which he can definitely can't return to anytime soon. What can we do? Well, so the first thing I really need to understand is whether this was an, a denial or whether this was a interim request for more documents before they render their decision. So mm. wh- here's what I mean by that. When you make an application, you're asked to send along a, an attending physician statement, which is a statement from your doctor that sort of sets out the basis for your disability, your diagnosis, your prognosis, how it impacts your ability to work. And sometimes you're also going to be providing additional documents. For example, your family doctor's clinical notes and records, or if you have a specialist, their clinical notes and records as well. But it's possible that when the insurer receives the file, they may not have the complete picture. They may be missing some of the clinical notes and records, or they may need to you know, find, hear the opinion of someone that you've seen on one occasion or hear what their diagnosis or prognosis is, whatever the case may be. And so if they haven't yet rendered their decision, sometimes they will write to you and say, we've received your initial package, but before we can render the decision, we need these additional documents. So sometimes you'll see that insufficient medical documentation language in sort of that interim request for more information. In that situation, well, that's perfectly legitimate. The insurance company is saying we need more information before we can render the decision. Okay, they haven't rendered the decision yet, then get them that information. Make sure that they don't have a reason to reject your claim simply because you haven't given them the information. But if you've given them all the information, and as Janice is describing it, she's saying that you know all of her husband's doctors agree that he's got a very serious injury. So presuming that Janice has already done that and presuming that this is in fact a denial letter, saying we're denying it because there's insufficient medical documentation showing that you have a disability, well, that's a different, that's a different case. That language, when you see it in a denial letter, is usually, it's a vague catch-all term mm-hmm. that they use. And typically you see it where there's not a lot of information provided. They're not going to break down the rationale behind why they made their decision. They're just going to say there's insufficient medical documentation. You figure it out. That's essentially the message. And usually people see that and they don't know what to do with it because they think to themselves, well... I've given them everything that I have. What more can they possibly want? And that's sort of the confusion that they want you to have with it. So what do you do with that? You start a legal claim. You take control away from the insurance company. You say, okay, we're not going to go through your process anymore. You have this appeal process that you want me to do, but you control that completely. Instead, you want to make sure you take control away from the insurance company. How do you do that? You bring a legal claim. As soon as you do that, 
the insurance company knows that they have to actually start paying attention and taking your claim seriously because they do not get the final say anymore. They don't get to make the decisions anymore. It is in the court system. And if push comes to shove, they're not going to be the ones that get to decide it. So that's what you do. We'll get to uh, Chandra's email now. Chandra says, uh, my daughter suffers from very severe panic attacks and anxiety. She's always been a very high-functioning individual, and despite her illness, uh, became a bank executive making over $200,000 a year. She had some personal things happen in her life that exacerbated her condition, and she went off on medical leave two years ago. A few months ago, she got a letter from her long-term disability insurer saying that she needs to see a psychiatrist chosen by the insurer she did, and the psychiatrist then provided some opinion to the insurer that my daughter could go back to work. So now the adjuster says that if my daughter doesn't return, uh, do, uh, return to work rather by the end of January, then she will be cut off benefits. My daughter's psychologist disagrees completely and uh, says that my daughter should absolutely not go back in the near future. What should my daughter do? It's you know a difficult problem because my advice is typically if an insurance company is saying you should go see this uh, doctor or this therapist that you know whether or not you should see that particular type of doctor or therapist is one question but seeing the one that they actually choose for you is an entirely different proposition because someone who is being chosen and in fact paid for by an insurance company has a vested interest in making sure that they're satisfied because they're getting work from that insurance company if they are sending you to see this particular doctor or therapist, you better believe that they're sending dozens, if not hundreds of other people there as well. And that is a significant source of income. So you really want to avoid as much as possible using service providers that are chosen by your insurer. But if you need, you know, if your insurer is saying, well, you should be getting treatment from a psychiatrist, it doesn't mean that you refuse that. It just means that you do what you can to find one that mm -hmm. you trust, that you think is going to be competent and has no interest in satisfying an insurance company. Unfortunately, in this particular case, you know, that boat has already sailed and, you know, Chandra's already gone to see, um, you know, this particular, I think it was a psychiatrist that you mentioned. Um, that has provided this uh, opinion to the insurance company. And so that is a now seen as a treating doctor, even though they're paid for by the insurance company, they're providing treatment. Mm -hmm. So it is a difficult thing to reject. And so what do you do? Well, you know, I still say that you have to listen to your treatment providers. And by that, I really mean the ones that you have chosen and that you trust. And so if you don't have faith that this treatment provider that was provided by your insurance company is actually looking out for your best interest and it's your psychologist that you have your faith in, then you have to listen to your psychologist and do what's going to be best for you. But you also have to appreciate that it is a difficult thing for your long-term disability case because now you have another treatment provider, albeit one paid for by the insurer, who has an opinion that supports the insurance company, and that will be heard by the court, and that will be given some weight. So you do what you can. You do what's going to be in your best interest, medically speaking. And so by that, I mean listen to the tre treatment providers that you've chosen, but understand that it can have an impact on your case down the road. We'll uh, take a short break and back into some more emails and questions as well. In the meantime, the number toll-free, 1-855-821-5900. And that email address is help at disabilityrights.ca. It's the Disability Law Show on Global News Radio.
Welcome back. Disability Law Show, 1-855-821-5900. That will put you in touch with James or Savannah or a member of the team uh, just as well. Disabilityrights.ca is the website. You can catch past shows, listen to those at your leisure, or the TV show as well, disabilityrights.ca. And the email address we use every week is help at disabilityrights.ca. And uh, moving on to uh, to another one. Shanita up next says, I slipped on ice outside my friend's apartment building. A few weeks ago, and I broke my right ankle. I needed surgery and now have screws, and I can't walk. I worked as a personal support worker at PSW for over 10 years, and I'm afraid I won't be able to work full-time hours for a very long time. I'm 54 years old. My friend told me that there have been lots of problems with ice around her uh, her apartment building. Other people fell too, and the management company was looking to hire a different winter maintenance company. I want to know if I can go after the current maintenance company and for what. I'm really angry about what happened and feel that it absolutely should have not been that icy. Okay, well, this is a very timely question. If you yeah, look right. outside, the the weather has uh, has not been great this winter, and from what I understand, it's not going to get much better. And so if you are in this situation, I'm going to give some general advice before I address you this question. So if you slip and fall, it is really important that you do what you can to preserve any evidence. And by that, I mean, number one, take pictures. Virtually everybody is walking around with a high-definition camera on their phone these days. Mm -hmm. And so assuming you have one and you slip and fall on ice and you're injured, take a picture if you have the wherewithal to do it. Now, I understand you know, in many situations if the injury is significant enough, you're just not going to be able to focus on that. That's just not what you're going to be thinking about. But at the very least, if there's somebody nearby, ask them to take a picture. And if that's not the case, then as soon as you talk to a friend or family member, once you've gotten some treatment for it, ask them to go and attend the location and take a picture. The reason it's so important to do it as quickly as possible is because you want to make sure that you have the best evidence possible of what that area looked like at the time when you fell. So you want to know whether or not it had been shoveled, whether or not there was salt put down, whether there was a patch of ice. If so, how big was it? How difficult was it to see? All of these things are are pieces of information that are really relevant to figuring out whether or not there is going to be liability on the potential defendants. So it's really important that you do that. Also, if there are any if there are any witnesses, you want to make sure at the very least you get their name and contact information. You don't have to worry about getting a statement from them, you know, once you hire a lawyer, we can do that. But you certainly want to make sure that we have the ability to contact them down the road. So get their name and contact information. It's actually a really easy process. The other thing I really want to make sure for anybody listening out there, if you slip and fall on any property that is owned by the municipal or provincial government, it is imperative that you notify them within 10 days of the fall that it has happened. And the way that you do that is for city claims, you're going to find the city clerk of the particular city that you fall that you fallen in. And now you can typically do that online. So if it's in Toronto, you would search on Google city clerk of the city of Toronto and you would you would get a website and usually there's a form online that you can fill out so it's very easy and all the all the forms going to ask you for are the details of the accident your name your contact information as precisely as possible that you can locate the area where you fell what your injuries were and that's pretty much it 
Um, anything else you're asking for, as long as it's about the, the fall itself, by all means, provide that information. You have to do that within 10 days. And the reason for that is because a municipality, a city, is going to have literally hundreds of these claims, hundreds of different slip and fall accidents occur on their property. Some of them they'll be responsible for and some of them they won't. But they have to be given a fair opportunity to do their own investigation to see what the property looked like at the time. And so that's why there's this requirement that you give them this notice within 10 days. As long as you've given them that notice, you can decide afterwards whether or not you want to pursue a legal claim against them. So by going to this step, giving them this notice, all you're doing is you're preserving your right down the road to bring a legal claim if you want to. Doesn't mean that you're going to do it and you don't have to. You don't have to have a lawyer to do this. You can do this on your own and you should do this right away. So let's assume that you've gone through that whole process. Yeah. Then once you bring a legal claim, then you know you can look at what your what damages are available. And damages is just the word that we lawyers use to describe the money available when you bring a legal claim. So in this particular case, you're going to be looking at first and foremost pain and suffering. It seems like, you know, Shanita, this was a pretty significant injury that you've suffered, the broken ankle, um, especially for somebody who is on their feet in their job as a personal support worker. That's going to be a significant claim. There's obviously a claim for loss of income to date, and it seems like there's going to be a claim for loss of income into the future. If you're only able to return in the future on a part-time basis, that means you're going to be suffering a loss of income down the road as well, too. So that would be part of the claim. And then certainly there's going to be a claim for any out-of-pocket expenses. So anything, any uh, medical treatment, any therapy that you've had to undergo, any medical treatment or therapy that you'll need in the future, any housekeeping assistance you need. If you live in a house yourself and you need assistance with outdoor maintenance like snow shoveling or yard maintenance and you're not able to do it because of your injury, then you might be entitled to claim for that as well too. So there are many different areas that you can bring claims for as a result of this kind of an accident. But again, I really want to caution you, make sure that you do what you need to at the outset. If it's on city property, give them the notice in 10 days, take the pictures, get witness statements. There was another question in there that Shanita asked about whether they can go after the current winter maintenance company. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't really concern yourself with that too much. Any lawyer who practices in this area of law and personal injury is going to have a really good sense of which parties to bring the claim against. And from your perspective, if you've fallen, you don't really care who it is you're going after. You don't care who's paying as long as somebody right. is. And you know, if you're curious about it, certainly you would want to bring a claim naming whoever owns the property and then whoever is providing the maintenance of the property. And sometimes whoever owns the property might be leasing it or renting it out to somebody else, so you would name them as well. So there could be two, sometimes three different parties that you're naming as defendants. You're not necessarily going to know at the outset which one is really responsible, and you find that out as the case goes along. That's not really a big deal, nor is it something that you need to worry about as someone who has fallen. What you need to worry about is making sure that you have all the evidence that you need to preserved and if necessary you provide notice if you're not sure whether it's on city property give the notice anyway just to be sure you know it's funny all those damages you mentioned you said you know it, it, it's not a big deal it's not a big deal for you because that's what somebody should be doing in this case because after you after that entire description i would never try to go this alone especially if there's two or three subcontractors supposed to clear this and do another contractor you don't want to be doing that on your own you're going to get nowhere trying to get all this done right 
Yeah, that's absolutely right. We're going to uh, leave it for there. For now, you want to reach out, get a hold of James or Savan, member of the team, easy, one 821 5900 That is the number. The email address is help at disabilityrights.ca. You can always check pocketemploymentlawyer.ca for the uh, section on disability rights. And any other questions can be asked and answered at mydisabilityquestions.com. Till next time, Disability Law Show on Global News Radio.